Hey everyone, welcome to the Chief Future Officer podcast where we bring the best minds in finance together. This is your host Indus. I am the Chief Savings Officer at Kolam during the week and a pilot on weekends. But enough about me. Let's talk to our very special guest. Welcome to another episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. I have a very special guest with me, Omar Ismail. Omar is the CFO at ICM Stellar Sports. Stellar Sports has grown to become one of the most valuable sports agencies in the world and was ranked number 1 by Forbes in 2019. Very grateful to be talking to you today Omar. Let me start with a question. What is a sports agency? Hi, it is a pleasure to be on the podcast. Um so a sports agency at its core is we represent athletes um for their on-field and off-field activity. Um and what that means is everything you see in the news in terms of their playing contracts if they're doing a transfer from one club to another um if they're doing a loan that all consists of on-field activity so we represent the players in those negotiations um the off-field will consist of doing their commercial deals so when they're doing Nike endorsements or Adidas or any of these creative and uh, marketing uh, activities for the for the players we we represent them on both halves And so at its core it's it's representing our clients to the best of our ability um on the life cycle of their of their journey from playing to off playing. So once they retire we continue to look after them. Um and so it's really a full service offering. Got it. So this is something like my agent as a sports person as an athlete uh, you look after my contracts, you look after my endorsements and you know monetize me the best possible way is that the right way to put it yeah correct and monetization is is obviously a key part but it's also it's protecting the players these are very high performing athletes at the top of their field uh, and so their utmost focus needs to be on playing and perfecting their craft um and so things such as negotiating contracts it would be difficult for them to to negotiate on their on on their own um because one they don't have all the market information they don't know what's going on outside and also unlike when you negotiate a a contract with your employer um there is an element of secrecy that clubs hold when they're playing different players and so you want an agent on your behalf to negotiate the best possible deal and again it's to remove those distractions so they can focus which is what they should do is on their playing and being the best player that they can our job is to one maximize their wealth maximize the contract on the playing but also looking at the bigger picture um it's great if they sign a huge contract but if they're not going to play that's a big problem for their career and so there's a balancing of looking after their money but also looking after their career and it's our job to help represent them the best way possible uh, to help develop their career very very interesting you know i'm i'm learning about this for the first time so i have tons of questions that i'm going to ask you but what i know i'm curious about this uh how did you land up in this role so this is very unique omar Yeah exactly this is um so I I'll go back to where I started my career so I started my career at BDO which was the the number 5 accounting company and I started within the M&A team um so I joined as a generalist uh, I'd always had an interest in tech and media so I I remember when I first started I I spoke to the the partner in that department and said let me please be on one of your deals um I paid my dues I did a lot of marketing and a lot of documents for him to to prove I was uh, of use and then eventually he put me on a few deals and and we we struck a good partnership and so I by de facto became the TMT specialist within the team my focus within TMT was actually more IT managed services cloud security companies and I dabbled a little bit in media uh, so my career started very very far away from football 
And so I, I continued that path within M&A. Uh, I really enjoyed it. The, the BDO remit was really that lower end, that kind of SME to mid-market. So deals ranging from 10 to 50 million enterprise value. And what you get at that size is you get companies that are, they've taken one step up from being a, a founder, a family-run business, and now started that process of where they want to take in institutional money from either a VC or private equity. And so you get to see all aspects of the business. You really need to understand, yes, the financials, but also the legal, the HR, the business. And then you're effectively, you become their estate agent. You need to market the company in the best possible way to raise them the most money. And when you're starting your career, that's a, it's a great path because you learn everything about the business. You end up knowing more about the business than the owner because the owner's focused on one aspect and you've had to uh, spend countless nights learning about every aspect for the due diligence process. Um, and so I started my career doing that in the low and mid market. Um, I, after three, I think it was two or three or four years, um, decided I wanted to experience some public market uh, M&A. So BDO is very much focused on private companies. I then made the switch to Investec, which is a South African investment bank, and again, doing M&A. And likewise, my focus remained in TMT. Again, I specialize in IT managed services, cybersecurity companies. So again, very far from um, the sports agencies. But the one deal I did do was I helped uh, a private equity company called Trilantic acquire James Grant, which is now known as YM&U. And they are uh, another sports talent agency uh, with a small action in sports. And so I, I got a little bit of intro to that space, but again, it was never at the forefront of what I was doing. And so as time went on, um, the opportunity came along with Stella. Um, people asked, has anyone got any experience in this space? And I had that one deal under my belt. And so they're like, well, you're going to get allocated to that deal because you're the only person who has any insight into talent agencies. And so I spent a good year working with the owners of Stellar Group and doing that process helped to sell the business uh, to ICM, which was a US Hollywood agency. So they're number, number three or four, depending on who you ask, in Hollywood. And so during that process, I became very close with, with the owners. I spent a lot of time. Um, the process started in 2020. So this was really, the deal happened over COVID. Um, so it was completely remote process. And again, because of that, People hadn't really uh, caught on on how to do deals in COVID. And so everything was very slow. But I, I became ingrained in the business. I spent, yeah, just close to a year doing the deal. And then once the deal completed, the two founders sat me down and they said, listen, Omar, we, we want you to, to join us and to continue what, whatever you were doing. We're not sure what you did, but you helped sell the business and we want you as a part of the team. And that was the job offer. And so it was interesting because I had never thought I was going to become a, go into industry. That was never my route plan. My route plan really was, okay, you've, you've done M&A, you've done that for, for years, and the natural progression is to go to private equity. And so that, in my mind, was at some point that will happen. And I, I remember I sat down, I spoke to my wife, and I said, oh, there's, there's this opportunity to join a football agency. It's the role is undefined. It's just come in and do what you think needs to be done. Um, and it, it was such a unique opportunity that and I'd spent so long working with them. As with most deals, um, when you finish the deal, it's a bittersweet moment because you spend so long with the business. You're, you're inside the tent. You're learning everything about. And then as soon as the deal closes, you're now an external advisor and you're no longer an insider. And I wasn't ready to let go of the business. And so I made the transition and, and joined Stella. I initially joined as a almost a miscellaneous director, which is uh, the role was undefined, but just come in and help, help us grow up and help us manage our new 
a new parent with US private equity backers. Um, and then after, I think it was four or five months, the FD uh, stepped down and I, and I took over the role. So I've been the CFO for the, the past year. And so that's how I've landed into to my current role. Nice. That's quite a spectrum, you know, from mid-market IT managed, managed services, M&A, to sports agencies, quite an opposite spectrum. Was finance always your career goal? Yeah, so when I first started my career, my aspiration since I was little was I want to be a trader. Didn't really know what that meant, but I was like, I want to be a trader. Um, I'd seen too many films about Wall Street, and I was like, that's, that's the path for me. I want to be in my 20s. I want to be earning big bucks. I want to drive a fast car, and that's the easiest way for me to get there um, that way. And I went to join M&A, but it's, the M&A route, in hindsight, was an unbelievable foundation because you see so many aspects of the business. And when you have to sell a business, you really have to understand everything. And I think those skills which I picked up although I didn't realize it at the time, actually has set me up quite nicely for my, my current role to understand what the CFO role is. And I know, as you've spoken with previous guests, that the chief future officer dabbles in lots of sections. And that's really what I, I came to join Stella to do, which is to dabble in lots of sections and uh, uh, to help grow the business. And so the short answer is no, I didn't think I would be a CFO. That was not in my, my 10-year plan, but I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at now. So founders are often, so since you've done the M&A, you work with executives, CEOs, and founders of these, you know, software companies, IT companies, and of course, getting them to the right destination in M&A. Often in venture capital, founders are, you know, talked about as being athletes, you know, running in terms of companies and building a team and having the endurance to, you know, run a marathon for 10 years and getting to IPO. Do you see overlap between what you saw in, you know, IT versus how you interact or, you know, who do you interact with in sports agent as a, you know, representative of an athlete? Are these two cohorts very similar in terms of what they want as an outcome? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think the one core competency that I've seen across every successful company and the CEO or the founders is they all go at 100 miles an hour at whatever they do. And that core desire to do the be the best of what they do and whether it's being the best IT provider the best cybersecurity or the best agent it's going at 100 miles an hour and so the industries are very different and it requires very different skill sets i think if you're an IT company selling to on a b2b um, requires a certain personality if you're a football agent it's a very different personality but that desire to be the best at what you do goes across industries um, and the best companies and the best founders have that that spark of real interest and it's it blurs the line for a lot of them between what is personal and what is business it's the business is their life um they are what they are in terms of the company and they, they live that at 100 miles an hour and so yes there is there is a lot of read across across different industries i'm not sure how some of my my colleagues would take that if i said that they're very similar to it managed service providers founders but there is a, there is positives across across them both You'd be surprised how much of uh, literature and books we read about the best software companies in the world are run like a sports team. You know, there's a lot of media chatter about it. There are blog posts about it. Now that you reflect on your career as, you know, part of uh, mid-market, you know, IT services uh, and helping do M&A, do you see similarity? I'm just trying to ask that question in a slightly different way. Yeah, no, I, th I think so. I think the, the best run teams are run like an elite sports team. Um, and it, it's funny you use that analogy because 
one of my bosses at Investec, he used to describe our team as we're different to the rest of the bank. We are an elite sports team. The investment banking M&A team is the, the sports team within the bigger bank um, in terms of the lending and all the other wonderful aspects of, of the bank. And so the idea of if you are at its core, an elite sports team is a very high performing, high pressure um, environment where everyone is accountable for what they do in the team. And so you can read across into to companies and successful companies is that they need to be very high performing and very tuned team members. And it's not a one man show. It is a team effort. And so, yes, there is the best companies are run like an elite sports team because they have high output, they have high expectation and they constantly want to win the next game, the next trophy. And it's always looking forward, but understanding it's a team aspect. And so the best companies for what I've seen, yeah, are definitely run as that elite sports um, mentality. Got it. What does your day look like, Omar? What's your team structure? You know, is it grueling 24 by 7, no weekends or, okay, work hard during the week and then relax during the weekend? It's a good question. Um, and I think so my, my team structure, uh, our core finance team is very lean. So we've got, um, there's, there's four people within our, our UK office. So there's myself. I have a financial controller, which um, we hired uh, last year. We have a, an accounts payable individual um, who he looks after all the all the money going out and all the expenses, and then an accounts receivable uh, lady who who makes sure all the money's coming in. And so we're we're quite tight knit and quite a, a lean team. And then we've got extra people in different regions who support our team. And again, it's yeah, everyone understands what their role is and how it fits into the bigger picture. And when I was looking to build the team out, um, I really wanted to create an ethos of everyone understands the bigger picture. Um, I think as some organizations grow and people become very siloed in what they do. This is their job and that's it. They don't really think of the bigger picture. And for me, um, I really wanted everyone to understand the bigger picture, to understand, okay, well, you're looking after the expenses or you're looking after the client account or you're looking after the revenue, but how does that fit into the bigger picture of what we're trying to build? And to give them context to, okay, you're discogging the machine, but without you, it doesn't work because there's all these other cogs that we need to work together. And I think that that creates a better environment than just saying, okay, you're only allowed to see this bit of information because that's what you're hired to do. And I think it empowers people to, to do more. And so that's how I've tried to build my team. Um, in terms of my day, it, it varies every day. It is very, very different. I think the role, the title is CFO, but it's probably more uh, a better title be chief miscellaneous officer, which is uh, everything that... Um, Everything that doesn't fit with an agent uh, falls to my team. And so there's, there's the task you set at the beginning of the day, uh, and then there's tasks that you've completed at the end of the day. And I don't think I've had a day where it's uh, gone to plan. I think that's the nature of the world. Things pop up, deals turn up where there's something quirky and something needs uh, some extra input from a finance perspective. Um, we need to make a new hire in a certain area. We need to work on logistics. We do a lot of cross-border deals. So then there's additional regulation and legal aspects. And so the day varies considerably. It might be one day, okay, I need to do payroll today to make sure that that runs smoothly and everyone gets paid. The next day, actually, we've got an opportunity to do an M&A acquisition. We need to follow that up. Um, the next one is we've uh, got an internal meeting to, to look at what our results are, what our forecast is and how are we doing. And so it, it can vary tremendously, um, which is great because it keeps you on your toes. It keeps every day exciting. And I think one of the best parts of being in, this type of job and I think any job really is when you work outside of your comfort zone is the best type of job 
because if you're very comfortable and if you know exactly what you're going to do for the next five days, I think I would struggle in that environment. Uh, I think the unpredictability makes it interesting. You mentioned international. Have you done cricket? So we used to do cricket. Uh, we do a little bit of cricket still. Um, historically, we looked after players like Brian Lara was one of ours, Waka Yunus, Wazim Akram. So we had quite a big uh, cricket portfolio uh, back in the day. Slightly curtailed now uh, and less of the focus. But uh, the main sports that we focus on in the in the stellar side is football is the predominant. We do rugby. We've now gone into esports, so we're doing more esports. Um, we've also been more women's football. And then in terms of our wider group, um, so we've recently sold the entire business to CAA. They're the number one in NFL, in basketball, in uh, in baseball. And so we're, we're now truly a global. But uh, our, my remit is that UK and global football and area. You mentioned esports. Uh, been hearing more and more how esports is becoming mainstream. There's, there are tournaments and millions of dollars in prizes. Educate us on esports a little bit. If I am a hot gamer on Madden 2022, how do I make money there? Yeah, no, esports e- is a really interesting area, and it's one that we've been we've been in for a, a few years now. Um, the way to make money in the esports is there's a two ways. There's a couple of ways. So there's one. There's the tournament route, which you say is you you enter a tournament. There's a big prize and you hopefully win uh, and then you can make the money. The other, which is an increasingly more developing area, is teams where people have been paid wages. They're being paid monthly to work for a team, um, whether it's a football club that have an esports team or it's a, an NFL team that have, a, have sponsored a team. And the team pays the athlete a salary and that they make money in that regard. And then obviously there's bonus payments linked to, to performance. And then the other side is that commercial side is the off-field in terms of any endorsements, in terms of trying to build their Twitch following, their TikTok following, et cetera, to try and commercialize themselves as a brand um, is an increasing avenue. Although there is, a, there is a lot of money being poured into esports, it's still developing in terms of that wage structure, in terms of what e-athletes are, are paid. Um, although recently there was the first transfer uh, and there was a transfer fee paid for uh, an esport athlete. I can't remember the team, but they paid a a fee to, to transfer in from one club to another. So that's a, definitely an exciting area, and I think that will only grow. Yeah, it's it's super awesome. In fact, you'll be surprised, I do not know whether you know, there was this esports tournament about Microsoft Excel. Yeah. People are competing, creating stuff within Excel. I was like, ah, what the hell is going on in the world? Yeah, I think I have seen that the modeling, there was like a financial modeling um, competition. I'm not sure if we'll venture into financially modeling <laughs> athletes. Um, uh, I'm not sure how lucrative that would be, but that would be very interesting. You mentioned about uh, you know transition from the IT managed services and then investment banking over there to the current sports agency. And we are also seeing a general transition how CFOs are becoming more and more strategic. And although you are kind of putting it as chief miscellaneous officer, but I'm sure you're spending time on strategy, you know, player acquisition and, you know, how to go do things better. Has the role changed in the last 10, 15 years? CFOs are no longer, hey, do this expense management, but hey, how do I acquire more revenue? Yeah, I, I think it has. And I think what I've seen from the, the deals that I've done, um, they've all had a, a core competencies, which they're good with numbers. They understand the numbers of the business. And I think that's the building block, which that will never go away. That needs to happen. But then what you do see is there is a, a divergence in the CFO, which is some of them are very strategic. So they're involved in the, the decision-making process of how do we grow? They're looking at the next step. 
um, whether that's an internal organic growth or it's an inorganic play. And then the CFO becomes increasingly more important. And then there's the more controller, more doers, which is they are very much more looking internally. How do I improve the processes? And that side, I think that the element of looking internally for processes is being pushed down to maybe one layer below to maybe the financial controller to take the responsibility. And that CFO is now being requested to be more strategic. And I think it just, it makes sense because at the end of the day, if you're not a, a not-for-profit, you are a for-profit business. And therefore, every decision has a number attached to it. And if a number is attached to it, that links back to, okay, well, who is the number person? Is that, well, the CFO is the most in tune with all the numbers. Um, and whether that's from an investment perspective, because you're trying to raise capital, whether it's uh, cash flow, whether it's, okay, we need to do some capex to uh, expand into a new region, or what does it look like? And what are the, the implications for the business model? So I think that role of the CFO becomes so integral into a lot of businesses that they've had to develop. I don't, the days of having a CFO where they just produce the monthly numbers and provide no context, I think will have to go. I, I think if you're a high growth business or growing business of a business of any scale, you want more, you want context. And the best person to provide context to the numbers is the CFO who should be strategic. So I definitely agree that there is a there is more of a shift and a more of a demand for the, the CFO to provide more than just be the numbers guy and to provide actual input into how the business is run. And has the team changed over the years? So as the CFO becomes strategic, you know, you mentioned about your team structure, but uh, has the competency of the team, the desire to have specific type of skills, has that changed in the last 10, 15 years? So I think what, what needs to happen is if the CFO is going to be more strategic, the only way they can do that is if the team is a well-oiled machine. And so you need to have all the parts done correctly, whether it's doing the, the VAT returns correctly to producing the monthly accounts to make sure the money's coming in, the payroll's done. And so there's a lot of functions. And if the team is too lean, it means the CFO has to do more. And if the CFO is spending more time processing expenses, for example, that is a very long and arduous task and it needs to be done and it's very important but it's not the best use of their time. And so you want to eliminate, I don't want to describe it as lower skilled, but the, the task which can be kind of passed on to someone else who's maybe more junior, who are, isn't required to have the strategic thinking. So if you free up the CFO's time, they can then think of, okay, let's look at where we should be expanding. This department is doing great. We actually need to invest more. How can we invest more? Talking it through with that department. And maybe it's a case of, well, we've spoken to a couple of other agencies in that region. We think they might be open for a discussion for an M&A opportunity. And again, you want the CFO then involved in that, that process to make sure it works so it can be joined in. Yes, the CEO or the COO, whoever is kind of helping run the business needs to, to believe in the ethos of how the business is going forward. But the CFO really does have, need to work in tandem with the CEO and the rest of the board um, to make sure any, any big picture ideas can be delivered, I think is important. So more automation from task perspective so that, you know, spend time thinking more strategically? Yeah, 100%. I think that the more tasks that can be automated or siloed um, for the more functional roles, which are, okay, we need, to, we need to do our audit, we need to submit our tax returns, we need to do X, Y, and Z, which are core functions that have to happen. But the more that can be automated and it's a very well-oiled uh, machine and very defined process frees up time. Um, and so that's been one of, one of, kind of the big tasks since I've joined, which is trying to build the infrastructure of the agents be the agents and let everything else we will sort out and we will put the right people in to, to silo off all of the demands um, and the functions so that I myself can think about other areas we can expand and where we can improve. 
Um, if you build efficiency, that will improve profitability. And if you improve profitability, you as a CFO look great because it looks like one, here's some implementation, here's how great we are. Uh, and so everyone likes to pat on the back when uh, things are going, going upward. Interesting. You mentioned that uh, growing up or early days, you, you mentioned you want to become a trader, go to Wall Street and you know do the three things that you mentioned earlier. Uh, what would you say to yourself if you went back in time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think where I've ended up now, I can see how everything has fallen into place. And I didn't get the career I thought I would have in a certain industry. Um, and I think that's okay. I think things, the paths come, experience comes. And I don't think any experience is a bad experience. Um, one of my first jobs was uh, when I was 16, I worked in customer service at Argus, which is uh, we were dealing with all the refunds and people complaining um, or trying to get everything refunded or exchanged. And it was a great experience. I loved it. It was a lot of people didn't like the confrontation. They didn't like the the challenge of people trying to return things they shouldn't or trying to uphold a policy. But it was a great interaction. And I think my younger self, I would say, just get any experience. It doesn't really matter what the experience is. Just make sure you keep learning and keep getting more experience because you don't know where you will end up. The deals I did at the beginning, at the time, I was like, I'm being bogged down in this tax issue on this deal. This is so, I'm not providing any strategic input, but I'm learning. I was learning skills that now are relevant today because I'm, I now know what to avoid. Uh, so we don't have any tax problems. And so everything's a learning opportunity. And I think, especially in your formative kind of early 20s and when you've just graduated, it's just to try and learn as much, get as much experience and you will need to work hard. It is, it will not be given to you, um, but just, and just make the most opportunity of what, what you're given um, to just try and pick up as many skills as possible. Interesting. What would you or to whom would you go back for advice or a source of inspiration or when you are in a bind, hey, resolve this for me, who do you go to? In my personal life, that'll be my wife uh, in my work. It's interesting because when I was in investment banking, we have a team, you have more senior people. And if something went wrong, you, you speak to someone more senior and you say, this is the problem. What should we do? When you become the CFO, the, the buck stops with you. And now it's, well, the decision's mine. And so that's quite a big change. And so my route is if I have a problem, I do like try to think, figure things out myself. If I can figure out, if I can Google it to try and find the right answer, that's great. If there's a forum, if there's a whatever. But then there's also people who I've worked with. So there's a director at Investec who I was very close with, who actually who, who led the deal when we did the Stella um, deal. I do call for advice from time to time um, to get insight because I understand People have got different experience. I might look a little bit older. It's not on the podcast, but uh, I've only been working for 10 years. I'm, I'm 30. And so it's, it's good to leverage where you can. But there's, yeah, one of the directors at Investec called Chris Treneman uh, has been a great source of um, advice for me over the years. Any specific book recommendation you have for the audience or podcasts or anything that you read and want to share with the world? Yeah, um, I think a book that I read that I think is really useful is a, it's a book called Power of Habits. It was actually uh, mandated by uh, one of my old bosses who made me read it. At the time, I was mortified that after working till midnight, 1 a.m., he was now giving me homework uh, to read a book. But, but in, in hindsight, it was a great book. Um, so I would definitely recommend The Power of Habits. And it, it's great for you both your personal and work life. And it's just understanding that decision fatigue and how that can impact your life. And it is, it's a great book. Um, in terms of podcasts, there's obviously this great podcast that is developing, so I would uh, recommend future listeners to, to continue and subscribe. Um, I have been listening to My First Million, which is quite an interesting podcast. 
to listen to, give some interesting insights with uh, just the right amount of jokes to, to, make it, uh, to make it fun. You mentioned about uh, decision fatigue in the comment that you made. Does it come to a Friday where you say, oh, I'm done? gonna pack up i wish it did um, <laughs> I, I wish it did I, I think the nature of the role is it is 24 7 you can go on holiday you can go away you can turn off but if something happens you need to be on and i think that it's an understanding is as you get more senior and there's more responsibility that idea of a nine to five doesn't exist my day is not structured as a nine to five some days i work a lot earlier some days i finish earlier some days i work really late or i work on the weekend and you are always thinking it, it is obviously important to try and switch off, but it's, I think once you get to a certain point, it's difficult to do that. Um, it is difficult and it's the nature of the role. Um, if something happened on the weekend and I, I need to speak to one of the agents or one of my staff or whatever, then it needs to be done. Um, I am very cognizant of not developing an investment banking M&A team. That is not what I was trying to build. And so unless it's critical, I will not disturb my team. I like to make sure that they do have time off. But for myself, and my, my wife will testify to this, it, it is all the time. Um, I don't think of it as a drain. It's, it's enjoyable because it is interesting. If, if a problem arises on the weekend, it is a thought-provoking problem. It's unlikely to be something such as there's an issue on a model. If there's an issue on a model, that can wait till Monday. Um, but if it's something critical, then we, we can discuss it. So, yeah, that is the nature of the job, uh, unfortunately. But Interesting. Since you were in tech investment banking, I'm going to ask you this particular question. So you know what's happening in the world. You know, the tech valuations have softened up. NASDAQ is down, almost a topsy-turvy. What's your prediction of the outlook? Yeah, it's interesting. The valuations were never sustainable. It was on such a long bull run. And the, the multiples that people were, were trading at and, and people were raising at were was always going to catch up with them, uh, I think. And the markets will... But there's going to be a period of further turbulence with kind of the macroeconomics, with the Russia-Ukraine war, et cetera. Um, things will normalize and I think they will get better. Um, but it's going to take, I think, a lot longer than maybe people expect. Will we get to the, the, the kind of pre-COVID valuation again? I think that will take a little while, but it goes in cycles. Um, people forget about the dismay and then all of a sudden the valuations pop. Um, but the helpful thing is obviously a, the big driver of a lot of valuation is there's a lot of money that's been raised. Um, as you saw at the beginning of COVID, which is as soon as COVID hit, everything dropped because all investors were mortified and terrified of their portfolio. They were taking stock, not writing any new checks. And then all of a sudden, uh, the penny dropped that they've got a lot of dry powder and they need to deploy. And then all of a sudden, valuation spiked again. And so you'll see something similar. Obviously, valuation is curtailed. But as time goes on, hopefully the, the kind of global economic situation lessens inflation, pulls back a little bit, there'll be investments will continue. And so that will then drive money because there's a lot of dry powder of investment. And so they have to deploy it. And so once they start to deploy, the best assets will continue to demand a premium. It's the mediocre ones where, we're, where they were able to ride a, a high valuation environment are going to struggle. But the best assets will continue to attract the highest multiple which I think is good. I think it's good for the environment. I think you, you want the best performing and the best companies to get the valuation they deserve and the mediocre ones um, should get a mediocre valuation. Uh, so, but it's, it's definitely a very interesting time. So if I'm a young finance professional aspiring to take a job in tech, I should still be hopeful. 
Oh, 100%, 100%. I think the way the world's going, it, it's all tech um, and it, it will continue to be that way. Um, so I wouldn't, it's not doom and gloom. Again, they're cycles. We're in a kind of slightly going downwards phase, um, but it will rebound. Um, it always does and it will continue to go upwards. So no doom and gloom uh, over here. Thank you, Omar. It was great chatting with you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for educating us on the whole business model of a sports agency. Looking forward to meeting you offline and uh, you have a great day. Likewise, great to speak and uh, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback and it'd be amazing if you could share this with anyone who may find this interesting. That's me, Indus from Kolam, signing off. See you in the next episode.